The Urbanist is brought to you in association with the Department of Culture and Tourism, Abu Dhabi. Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi is a beacon of hope and inspiration. A catalyst to spark growth and collaboration with museums and experiences, where art and science and nature and technology coexist. The belief of Abu Dhabi that culture is the backbone of our society. Stay tuned for a special episode of the show, in which you can hear His Excellency Mohammed Khalifa Al-Mubarak explain exactly why and how Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi is the perfect place to collaborate, create, and innovate. Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi, proud partner of The Urbanist on Monocle Radio. Hello, I'm Andrew Tuck, and this is The Urbanist. Monocle 24's programme dedicated to the built environment and the cities that we call home. Coming up today. One needs to be much more creative in terms of how one thinks of the built environment and real estate instead of it being a singular entity, looking at how the whole ecosystem works together. And that actually, in the end of the day, the great news is that adds the most value for shareholders and it's been proven time and time ends up in higher profitability. If the words real estate make you roll your eyes, do think twice because its impact in our urban environment can be far greater than what you might expect. This is just one of the things that we've learnt this week in Brussels, where we've been reporting from the Urban Land Institute's Europe Conference and Young Leaders Forum. Plus, we hear why the big metropolis is here to stay. To get people to come back to the office, it's not sufficient to say, come on a Monday and a Tuesday and a Friday. You have to create moments that matters. And I think managers have to create these moments that matters so that they bring the right resources together in the office when it counts. All that and much more, including how to hack your morning commute, or rather, how to make cities work for you. That's all ahead over the next 30 minutes. So let me hand you over to the urbanist team on the ground. Here's Monocle's Carlotta Rebello. Thanks, Andrew. Yes, it's quite a sunny day here in Brussels, actually, and the city is really busy with lots of people moving around. And we're right in Brussels' historic and cultural quarter in Mont des Arts. But we're not here to queue up to one of the museums, or if you think David Stevens has picked up skateboarding, that's not him in the background either. We're here to attend this year's conference by the Urban Land Institute, which has taken over the modernist Square Convention Center right in the heart of the city. So let's go through the stunning glass cube entrance and head inside. The Urban Land Institute, or ULI, has split the conference into two separate days. Today, day one is dedicated to young leaders, those under the age of 35 who are at the helm of some of the companies, NGOs and departments in charge of delivering change to our cities. I wanted to find out more about their mission. I'm William Reardon. I'm the chair of the Urban Land Institute's Young Leaders Group, and I'm also the founder of Oberland, which is a new hotel investment and development company. 
The Urban Land Institute is the largest nonprofit organization representing the built environment in the world. And basically what we do is we connect everybody from every part of the industry and bring them together to talk, to network, to learn. And so essentially we're the largest educational organization for the built environment. We delve into new trends and it's an opportunity for the professionals in, in the built environment or anybody who's interested in the built environment to come together in one forum. The built environment in the real estate industry is in a time of massive transformation, not only due to geopolitical events, but because the industry itself has recognized the limitations to the old way of just build it and they will come, and the necessity both to drive value of the individual assets within the industry, but also just to adapt to modern times of the operational side of real estate. And the operational side of real estate is really everybody who uses the building, everybody who's part of the real estate ecosystem. Everybody actually in the world is some way is part of the real estate industry. What do you do? You put on clothes every day and you walk into a building of some sort. So what happens in the real estate industry, what happens in the built environment fundamentally impacts your life on a daily, if not minute by minute basis. Let's take that as an opportunity to discuss then this, I guess, concept of real estate, because as you alluded to there, for a significant part of the population, it's still quite this old concept that, you know, you will build a building, you lease it, you collect, you know, your rent, but it's beyond that. And as you said, all of us play a part in this big pot that is real estate. How does that translate in your vision for what being part of the urban environment is like? To me, it's magical. I mean, originally, it was driven by value, to be honest. You know, people sitting behind spreadsheets seeing, oh, if we operate the asset as well as own the asset, there's an alignment there, there are synergies there, and ultimately, at the end of the day, there's greater value for our investors. So it really came from a fiduciary place. But what you're seeing right now is that when you do combine the operations of spaces with the actual development of spaces, is that you create much more efficient spaces, you know, much more sustainable spaces, spaces that are warmer, more human, and you you create something that then ensures that cities are much more livable. And so we're very early on in this process right now. But the merging of, in industry terms, the OPCO, which is the operating side, and the PROPCO, which is the development side, has endless opportunities for improvements to our daily lives. You don't even need to buy a building to change a building today. And I think that's the really important bit. You can be a small. We're here in Brussels, and the city of Brussels have been trying to encourage you know, younger, newer, fresher local ideas to come into the city to revitalize a lot of the retail. So you don't need to actually own a building these days to change the fabric of a city. And historically, real estate has had tremendously high barriers to entry because you need to buy some enormous building like the one that we're, we're sitting in to actually decide what to do with it. And there's been a misalignment between the stakeholders who can actually make changes and the citizens living in the immediate environs. And that balance of power is hopefully beginning to, to shift a little bit in what you're seeing right now, which to me is really exciting. And, and real estate is becoming a little bit more like the tech industry where the expense is more about the human capital the human talent that are coming into the industry through prop tech, through all these other elements, as opposed to just the buying of the building. Now, we're here today because it's the Young Leaders Forum. Tomorrow, it's the Urban Land Institute's Europe Conference. Why is it important to have a day dedicated to the young leaders? And what are some of the conversations that happen here? Why is it important to have that space? Our part of the forum is entitled Real Estate is Dead, Long Live Real Estate. The reason for that is that we're talking about a lot of the themes that I've discussed before. And incredibly, fortunately, within the real estate industry is we operate in a very collegial environment. And we've had some of the strongest leaders in the space wanting to come to this group because they are hopefully shaping the future. And so we heard you know, Christian Ulbrich, the global CEO of JLL, talking about 
the beginning of the day about everything that he was doing to transform that business, which was really exciting, and, and being very proud to share it with this group in the hopes that the idea catches on with the younger people in, in the room and that they drive it forward. I'd also say that despite the group being relatively young, because real estate is becoming entre- more entrepreneurial, because the barriers to entry are lowering, you actually get a lot of really, really successful entrepreneurs or other people who have been already leaders in the real estate environment, in the built environment, in the room, who are championing what they are really proud of. And that juxtaposition of the old and new, the traditional and the modern, really engenders great debate, which is, I think, the purpose of today's conversation and the reason that it's held in a slightly more informal setting. But the participation from the global leaders of real estate is really impressive, and we have a great lineup. When you gather a group of experts on the built environment together with real estate developers, it becomes almost inevitable to look back and assess the past two years and how the pandemic affected cities. We know that urban areas have changed massively, but that doesn't mean that the busy, bustling, thriving city as we know it is about to disappear. I'm uh, François Trauch. I'm the global CEO of Allianz Real Estate, one of the global real estate investors. I don't believe that big cities are dead. One out of personal experience, I started real estate in 93 in the US and uh, I got to start real estate in New York. And New York is sort of a concentration of real estate with all the skyscrapers, the density. And I learned in New York in six months, which uh, would have taken me, you know, two years in a normal European city. So I believe specifically for young people, big cities is where you learn. Big cities is where you develop your talent. And therefore, I think big cities play an important role as well. And then the second one is more of a real estate observation. Basically, urbanization is still ongoing. You know, as we speak, you know, cities like Stockholm or cities like Tokyo have a growing population. Why is that? The population of the countries might not be growing, but people move from medium cities to big cities. That trend is still continuing. And I worked a lot in China, and Chinese have understood that urbanization is the future of how a country needs to be structured. So I'm not a believer that coming out of COVID, you know, people all move to small cities, especially early in their careers. That doesn't mean that everything is rosy. We also have to ensure as participants in that market to provide adequate housing. And some countries are doing it better than others because housing, of course, has to come with it. But uh, yes, I'm a believer of 24 by 7 cities. Well, there's always been a change with what the city represents and how cities develop, obviously, because we as humans change, technology comes into play, all of these things. So is it more a case of cities having to adapt to who we are as a society post-COVID? Or do you feel like there's always going to be room for, you know, the busy life of a 24-7 city? For sure, cities have to adapt. They always have been adapting in the way they accommodate people. For example, today, indeed, being able to have affordable residential is important. And at Allianz, we are going back into residential while many institutional investors had gone out of that sector. We see the need to come back into that sector. I think we have to make sure that transportation into the city is adequate. And I've seen already the change in Paris. When I came back from Japan, I lived in Japan for six years. When I came back to Paris... I never bought a car again. That was in 2015. I never regretted it. So I changed the way I moved myself in Paris, alternating between uh, the metro, the bike, and the taxi or that type of cars. So I think uh, cities uh, do adapt. I think what got lost a little bit over time is a little bit the focus on the quality of the urban planning. I always refer to Haussmann. Haussmann was, from my point of view, a genius because he developed the essence of a dense city. Haussmann in quarter is more dense than a tower. Nevertheless, you know, people like it. They like to live in there 
and city planners sometimes very often see density as the enemy, and I think density is your friend, and I think cities will be more attractive if they understand how to use density to their advantage. For example, in Japan, the notion of vertical campuses already exists, eh, where you alternate different usages within uh, high-rise. Okay? So I think both high-rises and density will help the cities, I think, in their way forward. I'm curious to hear your take and the take of Allianz Real Estate on what do you see then as being the next big challenge for our urban environments? What are some of the things you're already working on or trends that you are foreseeing that, okay, this is going to be the next big hurdle for us? Is it back to affordability or is it something else in the horizon? First of all, you know, at Allianz Real Estate, we believe in central offices which uh, serve as the place where the culture of a company is being built. And uh, the first thing we did when COVID came and everybody was working from home, we did a concentric circle of five kilometers around city centers to see how many of our buildings were within that five-kilometer range because we felt that those buildings will remain in demand while those which are far away in suburban space will be less in demand. So having well-located offices on central transportation nodes. It also also means that we have to be more open to mixed-use projects, which basically mixing up office with residential, with, of course, a bit of retail, I think, especially amenity retail, which has tended to disappear in cities. And then finally, everybody speaks about last mile. You know, the last mile also has to be integrated. Again, coming back to my Asia experience, because I feel that in Asia, they don't have the luxury of time, so they do things fast. And what I learned from China or from Japan is you had all these little shops in the city which served sort of as last mile for package delivery in Japan. And that was a very efficient way to use the city not just as an area of consumption, but also maybe of production. Well, you mentioned that there about Japan. So maybe I'll throw a several parts question to you, which is, which cities do you think does the residential well? And which city do you think does the retail experience well? I'm actually quite impressed by London. I just came back from London. It's a city I like. We have an office there as well, even though the headquarters is in Munich. I myself, I live in Paris. But I like the way in London they have reused the arches under the train to create interesting type of retail, which basically does cater to the immediate needs of the community, but also quite trendy stores. Okay, how to use the old and use it again. I think uh, that's probably more the way to go than building the next shopping mall again. I think in terms of residential, I think the Nordics, uh, they have a good understanding because I think when it comes to residential, I think the design is important. And those cities which have just a good sense of what is good design for people to live in, uh, what makes interesting uh, living quarters, and uh, there's a lot we can learn from the Nordic countries in that regard. And as a matter of fact, because I also know you have an office in Zurich, uh, the way Zurich has done it also quite successfully versus maybe London or Paris where it's not as advanced yet. The line dividing private and personal, as well as private and public, has become even more blurred as a result of how cities have to adapt. In one of the sessions, we heard from an expert on the future of work and human experience, who explained her own vision for how to create the cities of tomorrow. I'm Marie Pubaro. I'm the Global Head of Research for GLL Work Dynamics. So I run a global research program, which really mainly focuses on the topic of the future of work. Uh, my ambition is really to try to decode for the real estate industry, where is the world of work going? How is work changing? What are the new workforce preferences? And what are the new workplace design we need to uh, think about, create, in order to match people's expectations wherever they work? 
talking about the public, more and more public-private partnerships are becoming the status quo more than the exception as they used to be. Mm -hmm. But how should we be remodeling those spaces in a way that includes the public? For example, ground floor spaces. That's so much potential there to incorporate city life in it. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the strategies that can be applied in order to improve our flow as citizens through the city and yeah, just the experience of urbanization? I think we've got to spend much more time really understanding what are the new working pattern, the new rhythm of life, rhythm of work, which uh, COVID-19 has uh, thrown at us. You know, we use our urban environment differently. We commute at different time of the day and also at different days during the week. And we use, we consume public space, you know, very differently to what we used to have before. So yes, this is calling for a very strong partnership between private and public, but using the citizens the society to actually feed in, to push in insight about how they used the environment. And I think we're not spending enough time, you know, gathering direct data and insight from, uh, you know, citizens into the new, the new world in which we are today. Whose responsibility should it be then to make that happen? This is an excellent question. I don't know. I know that uh, we work very closely to enterprises, to companies, to actually run regular service. So we know what the workforce preferences are. We know what they want. We know how they work. We understand their working patterns, their reason, you know, of work. The public sector, on the other hand, is really looking at it very differently. I mean, they look at commuting patterns. They know exactly when people step into public transport, when they come out, how long you know, they take you know, through their journey. Now, merging the two data together is something which I have not seen yet. And I think that's what we were discussing today, is how can we bring those data together and really, really decode what our new ways of living and working you know, look like so we can start adapting you know, cities to it. What are some of the ways that a commute could be made nicer? Obviously, looking at the data is crucial in understanding that, but are there easy solutions that could be implemented by most cities to at least improve marginally this experience? We all have to commute at one point or another. Well, you probably experience commuting and using public transport like I've done over the last, uh, you know, two years in different way. I mean, I cycle a lot into cities. I live in Paris and I must say, I love the cycling paths, which have been, you know, added to our city over the last two years. So cities are, are responding step by step. I think what we're missing really is master plans around how citizens travel through cities and how we can adapt the public infrastructure to it. So it can be commuting at different time and, uh, you know, reinforcing, you know, underground transportation, ground transportation also more efficiently at peak, uh, you know, period, because we found that the peak period is much longer, you know, nowadays, enabling also access to, you know, cycling paths, as I was mentioning about. And we've seen many cities putting plan in place to actually enable citizens to buy bikes, to rent bikes, uh, you know, much more, you know, easily. So they actually enhance mobility, uh, you know, across cities. But it's also the role of the private sector to push out 
accommodation outside of major, you know, urban area into suburban, you know, area. And Gare, into our panel session, gave the example of Amsterdam, which is a city where you have residential, you know, spaces, which also have office accommodation, amenities, retail, schools, hospitals, built as neighborhood. And, you know, in an ideal way, you want to be able to survive and thrive also into a neighborhood which enables you to find everything you need, not more than 15 minutes you know, away from your place of work. It's a tricky thing. Not all cities are adapted to this. It's going to take uh, you know, a lot of time. Does that vision and that solution run parallel to the vision and solution of retaining people at their core? Essentially, is it about allowing the city to be fluid and for you as a resident to choose which model fits you at that particular time in your life the best? Yeah, we definitely have to take into account that we have different needs at different time of our life. So we've got to find different models for different type of profile of users. Profile with uh, families, those who, who care for someone, those who live alone, those who want to live as part of a you know a community. I think we have different type of profile. So I don't think they should run in parallel, they should run together. And that's where the whole concept of creating an urban ecosystem both urban and suburban really needs to come together and how you create links between those hubs to really come together. So it's a tricky part. It's not going to be done overnight. And I'm sure next year we can continue the conversation here at ULI. But we need to start to think about how we come together around the table and build together this very strong partnership between private and public uh, you know, sector. It's day two now, and we're back at Square for the main event. This is ULI's Europe Conference, bringing together the majority of the organization's members. We've moved from the smaller plenary-style room with views over the city to a big modern auditorium, where Belgium's Prime Minister is kicking off proceedings with a welcome speech. One of the overarching themes we're exploring today is how going in and out of crisis has impacted our cities, from the built environment to people. I wanted to hear more about the latter and what exactly has been that impact on us as a population. My name is Timon de Jong. I'm a social psychologist from Amsterdam and my expertise is the future of human behavior. The interesting thing is that normally when a crisis happens, we go into crisis behavior and our emotions, we go to a low point and then we start the so-called reconstruction phase after the low point and we start to feel better. But the challenge with COVID was is that we came out of it, another wave came. We came out of it, another wave came. And now the last one, when the lockdowns ended, were pretty optimistic. The war in Ukraine started. And a global recession is dooming on the horizon. And of course, we have the climate crisis still there. So we've been bouncing in and out of crisis behavior. And we haven't had time to recuperate. And we're now in a place that psychologists call the sandbar. So if you can imagine a sandbar, then you're in the middle of the sea, you've shipwrecked, that was COVID, you made it to the sandbar, you're safe, you're not drowning anymore, but you're still in the middle of the sea, just on the sandbar. And that is from a psychological, emotional perspective where we currently are. Obviously, after two years of being in a cocoon in your own home, now it's difficult to get them back outside. How do we go about doing that? What has to change? 
Well, what I advise organizations is to be a loving parent and say, all right, I'm your loving parent. I know best. I'm going to not force, I'm going to nudge you towards certain behavior. So I lecture at Utrecht University. There's quite a large percentage of students who are not coming back into campus because we also have digital lectures. And it's time to start thinking about, because if we leave it up to them, they're not coming back. So we might be that loving parent and say, we know best, uh, you have to come in. So now how do you do that practically? Is say, Don't say as an employer or as a university, we want you back five days at the office. I'm forcing you back. But just say, all right, we're going to experiment. I want you back at the office two days a week, and we're going to do that for three months. And then we're going to evaluate. So if you set a time frame, then it's all right. It's not five days, but it's two, so all right, and it's for three months, and my boss wants my opinion. So you have to lead people in there, and if they feel some form of control, if they feel it's a limited time and not indefinitely, then you can get people back, and then after a few months, they say, hey, this was actually quite good. I'm happy that you made me do this. Now, one of the things as well, going beyond just thinking about the workplace, is the role of retail. For, Mm. obviously, for decades and centuries, retail has been one of the main reasons why people go out in the city or even why they move to cities. The opportunity to have access to a variety of products and shops and brands that you don't get anywhere else. How do we get then the physical brick-and-mortar shops to encourage people to pull them back in? Because opening the door doesn't seem to be enough anymore. No, because a brick-and-mortar store can never be on speed, efficiency, price. And, you know, you have these grocery stores where you have to do your self-checkout. It can never be the convenience of e-commerce where it's just delivered to your home. So what brick-and-mortar should do is take the opposite approach and say, all right, what is a physical environment better at than a digital environment? That is building a relationship, experience with the product, and building trust. So human connections, engagement, trust... But for that, don't install an automatic cash register where you have to do it yourself. I gave the example just now of Jumbo, which actually it's a grocery chain store from the Netherlands. And they opened up 200 so-called Kletskassas. And Kletskassa is chat cash register. So what this is, there's a big sign, Kletskassa. And it's a cash register for people who want to have a chat and are not in a rush. It's the opposite from e-commerce. It takes some time and the people are standing in line are encouraged to chat. And they've put their most social employee behind the cash register and they take time to have a chat. And I think that's a wonderful way to connect with the brand, the environment, the people there, engagement, trust will go up. And that is an example of how to get people back into grocery shopping. I guess just a final question. Obviously, you are an expert in kind of understanding and looking at the data to see where our behavior is going to take us as humans. What is the trend you see going forward? Do you see us getting out of these, I don't necessarily want to use the word bad, but these habits that we as a society picked up during the pandemic that have made us perhaps not as social and as interactive compassionate with one another because we've been in our bubble and in our cocoon for so long. Do you see us emerging out of that or because, you know, of the other threats around our sandbar, like the war in Ukraine, climate change, everything that surrounds us? For now, people will still feel safe to just stare at the ocean. I think short term, it's hard to get people out of this anxiety, the sandbar behavior, as I call it. But I think long term, there will be more build environment focused on increasing happiness, increasing connection. Offices, brick and mortar stores saying, all right, how can I make these people more happy? How can I connect people? How can I increase trust between us, the place, the brand and the shoppers, but also them amongst each other. 
Now, when we think about the words smart city, this is usually associated with technology and almost utopian visions of urban areas. But if there's one thing that we've learned over the years here on The Urbanist, is that that couldn't be further from reality. Well, in the city of Amsterdam, this line is being pushed even further by engaging in hiring digital urban planners to work on the city's metaverse. Confused? My name is Gebaron. I work for the city of Amsterdam as their chief technology officer. To be frank, I never use the word smart anymore because of the idea that's about technology. But the work we've been trying to do is uh, bringing digital, so platforms, digital technology, everything together, together with the physical infrastructure and achieve our social goals, basically. So for me, what you would name a smart city is basically a way to use technology in urban life for, well, healthier, more sustainable, better accessible cities. So uh, one of the things we've been doing for last year is give real-time information, not only on car traffic, but also on cyclists and pedestrians. So in COVID era, people could keep distance, whatever, basically, and see what's happening in the city on certain places. So it's about providing the data and opening it up to citizens, not only to companies or ourselves, indeed. I'm curious to hear about you know, your role as a chief technology officer. How do you bring local authorities, for example, in line with the digitalization? Yeah, in different ways. So when it comes to, at some given, digital urban planning, we're still in the phase that we actually make 3D models and start to collaborate with different departments on how to model also social infrastructures within the physical infrastructure, etc. Uh, but even the next step, what I'm not talking a lot about, basically, how to integrate this with the metaverse on top of a city, example given. And it seems something where we could all laugh about and it's not going to that big and how important is this but even three four years ago I needed to call the company behind Pokemon Go to ask them to remove Pokestops from our roads basically because kids were running at the roads to their Pokestops you can imagine that integrating AR layers to a city actually will give a lot of questions to us so we do need digital urban planning as well where are you allowed to put your digital features basically who owns them and how to program your city in many ways so it's about technology and 3D modeling and bring data together etc but even also the digital layer the real digital layer, the virtual world on top of it, that's relevant as well. It's quite uh, fascinating to think that part of uh, city management these days includes you know, the metaverse. And you gave the example there of Pokemon Go. We know how when it became the big craze, we all talk about, maybe in a joking way, but how it was great for urban planning because people were out and about and exploring the city. But that is just one of the many examples. In which way does the metaverse need to be managed and influence our everyday actions? More than we think, and uh, we use metaphors as broad technology to describe a whole bunch of developments, NFTs, etc. I think it's very relevant that we start to think about this. And I say start to think about this because the thinking in cities hasn't even started. When I talk to my urban planner friends, basically, in City Hall, they look at me, well, sorry, I'm busy building houses because we need houses at the moment. And nobody really is thinking about, hey, what's the role of, well, let's say digital urban planning integrating these digital layers. And I think this is something we actually should do, come up with, well, design principles, I would say. you never, on top of a road, you never do something where people are attracted to. So it should come up with, uh, well, some first traffic rules. When the cars came into the city, we came up with traffic rules, basically. At first, very simple, very small. Nowadays, a bit more complicated. And I think you should see this development the same as we cope with drones, etc. I would say. And we need to find a role in these digital layers, basically. I mean, digital roads, putting you on the physical roads and give models through their digital cloud basically and they calculate your perfect road through the city it's different sometimes than what we want i mean we look at air quality we look at schools we look at well maybe streets with elderly people and poor air quality whatever we look at different things and not only fast from a to b so we really need to define for ourselves what are our principles with regards to these platforms and digital layers as a city and internally people start to nod 
okay, give them to me, or, or can we make it to practice? They all think this will be 20 years ahead and we have time, because urban planners like to think 30 years, 40 years ahead. I mean, urban planners like to think they can design the city of 2060, because once you put in a physical road, it's there for 100 years. Well, the way we do it right now, that's true. So in that logic, starting to work on the metaverse of a city now is indeed how you prepare for the cities of the future. Absolutely, absolutely, because what I see what's happening is that cities and, and a whole generation popping up now is used to festivals, to programming, and I think programming will be very important for a city because on top there will be this virtual reality layers. So you can use spaces in different ways throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout the year per second, per hour, whatever. So the combination of individual services and your view around it with common use together with public interest will be a discussion we need to have within the next years because we're not going to put in a square for 20 years in a digital world. I mean, this will be different tomorrow. Now, we know that global events shape the course of our cities. After all, urban areas are a reflection of the world around them. Tina Fordham is a geopolitical strategist and founder of Fordham Global Foresight. She advises investors, the United Nations and the UK Ministry of Defence on the implications of these issues. She was also the first chief global political analyst on Wall Street, bridging that gap between politics and economics. It was my idea. I wasn't recruited. I said to Citibank, my employer for 17 years, you've got 200 economists, but you don't have somebody who focuses on politics. And it's not the same. And after 17 years, I joked that there were 150 economists and, you know, I had one person on my team. There has been a, a real sea change in understanding that economics, whilst related to politics, is a different discipline. At the heart of my approach is social science, comparative social science, and I always say that I like to put the humans in geopolitics, which is described as what countries do to project power abroad. We also need to think about civil unrest, revolutions, and social impact. So what I try to do in my analysis is to bring those drivers of change, as I call them, together. How does that translate to the practicality of living in cities? And what are some of the ways where your research and your work can help guide cities in a new direction? Well, it's a super interesting point. One of the kind of big macro narratives that took hold a few years ago was the kind of rise of megacities. And of course, the pandemic will have delivered a big hit to that. But I'm a little bit skeptical about these mega-narratives or meta-narratives, I guess they are anyway, because events inevitably happen that reduce you know, their levels of acceleration. I mean, I live in London. I've lived in London for 20 years. I don't go to an office regularly anymore, but I still wouldn't want to live outside of London. And so people who predict a mass exodus from cities as a result of the pandemic, I think are misunderstanding what drives people to live in cities. It isn't 100% about work. I like having other people around and being able to go to lectures and universities and everything else. It's a big part of my approach. Are local governments thinking about this? I mean, I have to say that whether I'm talking to the World Bank or the Ministry of Defense or you know some of the largest entities in the city of London, what you see, in fact, is overwhelming normalcy bias or normality bias, we would say, in the UK, which is when are things going to go back to the way they used to be? I think that that still prevails, but the more innovative and progressive thinkers are thinking about how can we make the future better? And I guess that's the conversation that I'd like to be part of. 
The past few days have been interesting to observe. Despite having the pandemic recovery and ongoing war in Ukraine as a backdrop to most of the conversations, I'm returning back to London with a sense of optimism. It's clear that the city is not going anywhere, and all these players who have a responsibility in shaping the urban environments around us, they are excited for what comes next. For Monocle in Brussels, I'm Carlotta Rebello. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode of The Urbanist. For your weekly fix of urbanism and built environment news, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and of course at monocle.com. And as a treat, we'll throw in some of our five-minute bite-sized sister shows, Tall Stories 2. New episodes are out on Mondays. Today's episode was produced by Carlotta Ribello and David Stevens who are on the ground in Brussels, and David also edited the show. And to play you out this week, here's Angele with Bruxelles Je T'aime. Thank you for listening, city lovers. Bruxelles.